Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship, and especially welcome those of you who are visiting us for the first time at the invitation of a friend, coworker, sibling, or other family members, and especially if this is your first time at a church. If you're here considering the claims of Christianity and you are not uh, what you would call a Christian, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so honored to have you, and we hope and pray that our time together will not only be informative, but also, by the grace of God, inspirational to where you would even consider to believe that Jesus, who he claims to be in the Bible, namely the God of the universe, meaning your God as well. Uh, Without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads one last time so we can ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, for you have promised that when your people gather together by the summoning of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, you would be present among us in a way that we could never capture on our own. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us. Would you minister to our needs? Would you heal every broken uh, moments of our lives as well as the broken uh, things within us so that we could have hope that you are a God who brings healing and restoration. Father, you are so good. You are the good, good Father. That is who you are. And we pray that we would always remember that and hold on to that truth till the moment that our breath leaves our bodies and is in the presence of you in your glorious kingdom. Oh, Father, we ask that you would now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So back in 1994... Uh, For those of you who weren't in existence, don't worry. Um, But back in 1994, there was an incredible movie that I thought was perhaps the greatest movie ever created. And what was the name of the cinematic masterpiece, you may be wondering? Well, there it is, the movie poster, Star Trek Generations. I love the tagline that says, two captains, one destiny. Yes. Yes, I, I, if I didn't uh, make it out as a pastor, I would hope to either do radio disc jockeying or movie trailer voiceover guy. That's what people have said that I should do if I don't make it as a preacher. But yes, this was one of my favorite movies. And for those of you who don't even recognize the faces of the actors or even recognize the title of the movie, my only question is, what the heck's wrong with you? <laughs> what is wrong with you two? Or you don't even know the celebrities on this poster or the title. All kidding aside, for those of you who don't know, this movie is one of many that's based on the smash TV show Star Trek The Next Generation, which is basically a sci-fi TV show that was very popular in the 80s and 90s, right? And it follows the journey of the crew of the USS Enterprise, a starship where its main mission was to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before, right? Yes, you remember that tagline. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up this movie is because in this movie, there is a particular scene that's especially relevant to us in today's message. You see, the villain of this movie, an evil doctor, a mad scientist by the name of Dr. Soren, captures one of the crew of the USS Enterprise, the ship's engineer, Lieutenant Commander Jordy LaForge. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand about Commander LaForge is that he was born blind. Now, of course, this being a sci-fi movie set in the 25th century, blindness is not a problem because technology enabled Commander LaForge to have this eyepiece over his eyes that enabled him to see beyond what the human eye could see. But, of course, it was kind of weird looking. People said it kind of looked like those weird little uh, combs that women would wear that you could fold in half. I don't even know if you remember that. But it was this 
weird looking thing. And going back to the scene that I'm describing where Dr. Soren captures Commander LaForge, the evil doctor inspects his eyewear and he says, wow, this is marvelous. This is an incredible piece of technology. And then after admiring it, he proceeds to interrogate Commander LaForge and he begins his interrogation with these words. Have you ever considered a prosthesis that would make you look a little more, uh, how can I say, more normal? To which Commander LaForge replies, what's normal? And then he says, what's normal? Well, that's a good question. Normal is what everyone else is, and you are not. Ouch. (laughs) Now, I'm willing to bet that even though most or some or maybe just a minority of you may have not been familiar with this movie, I'm willing to bet that all of you are very familiar with this particular definition of normal because it's the definition that we would hope and pray would never be defined for us as it's being defined for Commander LaForge. That is, we would hope and pray that we would not be one of the you are nots of what everyone else is, namely normal. Now, how do I know this? Well, consider one of the biggest uh, companies and the com- uh, uh, it's not companies. Consider one of the driving forces in our culture that drive our, co- our our economy: advertisements. Right? Can you consider what advertisements do? You would see that it measures an accurate barometer of how much we chase after this desire of wanting to be normal. Case to point, consider these words from an article I came across entitled 13 Ways Advertisers Persuade You to Buy. It says this, quote, it is a common strategy in advertising that has been used successfully for decades and it's still being used today. Of course, advertisers aren't overtly going to say your life sucks, but you'll feel much better if you buy this product. However, they can suggest it and they do it well. Images of people looking a little down, maybe walking a little slow compared to the after images of them being happier now that they have the new coat or watch or car beer ads make it seem like you've only enjoy yourself after a few points and then there are jewelry ads for example he went to jared that showcase how disappointed and awful you will feel both if you don't get the ring from the right place advertisers are in the business of making you feel like your life isn't normal that your life sucks why So that you would look to the products and services that they are advertising as a way of alleviating that so that you would not feel your life sucks. So that you would feel normal and given the billions of dollars that are generated through advertisement, it is clear that as a society, we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our energy, and a lot of our money in our quest to be normal. And why not? Shouldn't we all aspire to have normalcy in our lives? Shouldn't we all yearn to be quote-unquote normal, to be what everyone else is and what those abnormal people are not, right? Shouldn't we all yearn for a life with no dysfunctions, no issues, no problems, no weaknesses? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, yes, there is something wrong with that. Because he's going to show us in today's passage that our quest, our desire to be quote-unquote normal, the way our culture defines it, is not only impossible, but it's dangerous for your soul. And the way he's going to help us understand this is by breaking it down in this concept of weakness, about the nature of weakness that we human beings have to face, will face throughout our lives. And so, without further ado, as we take a look at our passage for today— three things that I'd like to share with you that the Apostle Paul is going to teach us in 2 Corinthians 12. And those three things are, number one, your weaknesses are unavoidable. Number two, your weaknesses are unconquerable. 
And number three, your weaknesses keep you safe. Your weaknesses, they're unavoidable. You can't conquer them, but they keep you safe. Let's jump right in. First, your weaknesses are unavoidable. Let's have our passage up, please, for today. And starting in verse 1, we read as follows. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Paul begins our passage by describing a very weird, very out-of-this-world kind of experience that just sounds so outlandish that you would think that this guy is crazy, an experience that he had a little over 14 years ago. Now, for those of you who were carefully reading along as I read this out loud, you're probably wondering to yourself, why is Paul writing about himself in such a way as if he's talking about somebody else, right? He's referring to himself in the third person. Why is he writing this way, right? Well, I'm going to answer that question later on in the message, but the more pressing question that we need to ask ourselves is why is Paul even describing this experience at all? Why is he bringing this to our attention? What's the purpose of why he's even sharing this out of this world kind of weird nebulous experience at all? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to know a little bit about the backstory that prompted him to write this letter in the first place. So according to New Testament scholars, it turns out that there were false teachers infiltrating this church in Corinth that Paul himself started in his second missionary journey. Okay, These false teachers came into the church that Paul himself started, and they started corrupting the community that he built. And here's the thing about these false teachers. They called themselves, no joke— the super apostles. That's literally what they call themselves. That's how they identify themselves. We are the super apostles, okay? And if you read between the lines of what Paul says in chapter 10 of this very letter, you can figure out why these people call themselves with such outlandish names. Let's take a look. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Let's read what he says about these super apostles. It reads as follows. Look at the obvious facts. Those who say they belong to Christ must recognize that we belong to Christ as much as they do. I may seem to be boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord, but our authority builds you up. It doesn't tear you down. So I will not be ashamed by using my authority. I'm not trying to frighten you by my letters. For some, the super apostles say, Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person he is weak and his speeches are worthless. Those people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. Okay, so here's what's going on. Based on what Paul is saying here, turns out these super apostles, they were looking down on Paul. And why were they looking down on him? Because according to them... Paul carried himself as he was a, a powerful force to be reckoned with, that he was strong and an intimidating presence. But when you meet him in person, he was, in their minds, verse 10, weak. He was pathetic. He was a weakling. Now, just from the negative ways in which Paul is conveying how these false teachers viewed him, we can extrapolate how these false teachers viewed themselves. And how did these false teachers view themselves? They viewed themselves as if they had no weaknesses whatsoever. 
In other words, they saw themselves as if they were Superman himself, impervious to anything debilitating and therefore incapable of being humiliated by anything going on in their lives, right? Or if I could put it this way, these super apostles saw themselves as having achieved something that the apostle only pretended to achieve, but in fact didn't. He was able, they were able, excuse me, to avoid weaknesses. They were able to avoid embarrassing situations, issues, and conditions in life that make a person feel, if they have these issues, conditions, and, and situations, as if their life sucks, basically. Now, let's pause our study for just a moment, and let's get a little personal. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone through something in your life, or do you have a situation going on in your life? Do you have an issue in your life, or do you have a condition in your life that makes you feel weak, pathetic, basically that your life sucks? Do you feel that way? Or have you felt that way? The answer, of course you have. Of course you do. We all have. There are books written about how pervasive this problem is. In fact, let me draw your attention to one particular book that I came across. It says, when will my life not suck? Which is basically talking about this very issue that Paul is addressing in our passage. And in this book, the author describes some real concrete weaknesses that seem to be pervasive everywhere. Let me read to you a sampling of some of the things that he lists in his book and see if it doesn't resonate with you. For example, singles in relationships that are going nowhere. Singles for whom a relationship is nowhere in sight. Wives who feel sentenced to a bland marriage. Husbands who feel expendable at work and unappreciated at home. Mothers who seemingly have no identity or life of their own. People battling cancer, a chronic debilitating illness or chronic pain. Addicts and the people who love them. Single fathers who miss their children and single mothers who are overwhelmed by them. Peoples whose Prozac, Wellbutrin, and Lexapro isn't working. People who feel trapped in sluggish, overweight bodies. People with sexual scars, addictions, AIDS, or other STDs. Graduates who can't get a job after four years of costly training. Now, when I read this list, I immediately envisioned someone specific in my life who fit the bill on some of these descriptions. And I'm willing to bet that you can think of someone specific in your life as well. Who knows? Maybe the person that you're thinking of is yourself. Now, what's the point in all of this? Here's the point. Contrary to what these super apostles were claiming about themselves, the fact of the matter is weakness is completely unavoidable. Let me say that again. The weaknesses of life, such as the embarrassing situations, the overwhelming issues, and the scandalous conditions that we all struggle with that make life suck, they're all unavoidable. No one is immune to the weaknesses of life. Everybody has them. And because that is true, do you realize what that means? It means anyone who makes the claim that they have no weaknesses, that they have no issues, they have no situations going on in their life that make them feel pathetic, anyone who makes that claim is an absolute liar. They're lying to the people around them, and they are lying to themselves. Anyone who makes the claim like these super apostles were, who say, oh, I've been able to bypass all the things in life that make you feel like you suck, the weaknesses of life, they are lying. They are lying to the people around them. They're lying to themselves. In his critically acclaimed award-winning book, The Strong and the Weak, Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier says the following. Listen to what he says. I believe there is a great illusion underlying both the despair of the weak and the unease of the strong and the misfortune of both. This great illusion is the very notion that there are two kinds of human beings, the strong and the weak. The truth is that human beings are much more alike than they think. What is different is the external mask, their outward reaction, strong or weak. 
These appearances, however, hide an identical inner personality. All men, and that is all of humanity, in fact, are weak. All are weak because all are afraid. They are all afraid of being trampled underfoot. They are all afraid of their inner weaknesses being discovered. They all have secret faults. They all have a bad conscience on account of certain acts which they would like to keep covered up. They are all afraid of other men and of God, of themselves, of life and of death. What is he saying here? He's saying that in spite of the appearance of some people who seem to have all their act together, who seem to have no pathetic issues, no embarrassing conditions, no scandalous flaws, the fact of the matter is they have it all, just like you, just like me. And any claim to the contrary is an absolute lie. Such people are lying to everyone else, including themselves, which does beg the question, why do people like this? Why do people like the super apostles? Why do they lie like this? Why do they deceive others and themselves in thinking of themselves in such a way? Well, here is where you have to go back to that weird experience that Paul describes in verses 1 to 4, this notion of going up to the third heaven, this paradise, and and hearing things that no one else is allowed to utter. Now, when you first read this weird experience, it just sounds so out there. It just sounds so unrelatable, right? To where you're like, what in the world are you talking about, man? And yet, if you take a closer look of what he's experiencing, you find a familiar ring to it. Because what is Paul essentially experiencing? He's getting exclusive access and exclusive experiences that no one else is permitted to have, right? That's essentially what he's describing here in verses 1 to 4. Now, what is Paul essentially saying about himself by describing this weird experience that he had 14 years ago? He's saying that he has status, right? Think about it. People who are given access to top secret documents like the president or people who are given VIP access to the most exclusive clubs in the city or people who are allowed to take a a, a preview taste of an exclusive restaurant that's not yet open to the general public. Such people get to have such experiences and such access because they have status, right? Now, in our day and age, you can get status in so many different ways. You get status by having a lot of money by being incredibly good-looking, by having amazing talent, by going to such-and-such school, by working at such-and-such company, right? In our day and age, you can get status in so many different ways. But do you know how people like Paul, who rolled around religious circles, how people like them got status? Through spiritual experiences, by having the kinds of experiences that would give you exclusive insights, exclusive access, exclusive experiences that no one else had. And guess what? That's what these super apostles were claiming about themselves. They are claiming that they had unique insights. They had unique experiences, unique credibility that therefore gave them status. And it was because of this status that they thought they had that enabled them to be deceived into thinking they had no weakness. They had no weakness. It's because of this idea of having status that makes people think that they aren't weak. But let's go back for just a moment to the way Paul is describing himself in verses 1 to 4. Why, again, is he referring to himself in the third person? Why is he referring to himself as if he's talking about somebody else? Why does he do that? Well, he actually tells us in the next two verses. Read again what he says in verses 5 to 6. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
What's he saying? He's basically saying this. Look, guys, I have status. I have been given exclusive access that no one else has been to. I've been to the third heaven. And I have experienced things in such a way that no one else can hear of it. Right? But that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make me more than what I really am, is what he's saying. It doesn't mean that I'm strong. It doesn't mean I'm a strong person at all. Because deep down, I am weak, just like everyone else. That is what Paul is saying. So what's the point? The point is this. Just because you come from a certain kind of family, just because you may be incredibly good looking, just because you possess an amazing talent, just because you went to such and such school, just because you've achieved some kind of achievement or you work at this company doesn't change the fact that you, like me, like everyone else, you're weak. Why? Weakness is unavoidable. You have it. I have it. Everyone has it. Status does not change the fact of what you are. Who are you? You are a weak person. Now, up to this point, Paul has said a lot, but he's not done. Because as much as he wants us to understand that weakness is unavoidable, there's something else about weakness that he makes sure that we also understand. And to explain, let me go to my next point. Your weaknesses are unconquerable. Let's skip on down to the middle of our passage where we pick it back up in verse 7. And it reads as follows. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Pause right there, your attention. After finishing his description of this weird experience he had in verses 1 to 4, Paul moves on in describing his weakness. And interestingly, he describes his weakness as what? A thorn in the flesh. Interesting. A thorn in the flesh. Now, New Testament scholars have long debated in trying to identify what exactly this weakness was. What exactly was this thorn? Some scholars think that it was some sort of physical disability. Most hypothesize that it was an eye disorder because when Paul got converted in Acts chapter 9, he encountered the risen Jesus where his eyes were temporarily blinded. And some hypothesize that he never recovered from that. And that was a constant reminder of the man he used to be, right? Other people think that it's some sort of sin that he couldn't overcome or some sinful desire he couldn't repress. Some hypothesize that maybe he struggled with homosexual desires or maybe even struggled with homosexuality in general. Other people say, no, the thorn is an actual person because of the fact that the word messenger is used, which is a personification, which means it must be a person. It must be someone who's harassing Paul. It must be a real person who is a pain in the neck to him, right? You're probably thinking of someone right now. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that just sounds right. But to this day, there's still no consensus among scholars about what this thorn was. And I believe Paul did that on purpose. I believe Paul intentionally was very cryptic about what his weakness was by referring to it as a thorn for two reasons. And to explain the first reason, let me read to you a quote from New Testament scholar Philip Hughes because he hits a nail on the head as to why Paul identified it for the first reason. He says this, quote, let us suppose that Paul had supplied specific details regarding his thorn in the flesh and that it was some form of, I don't know, epilepsy. Then subsequent generations of Christians, the great majority of whom have been free from this complaint 
would have been inclined to dismiss the apostles' problem as one remote from the reality of their own existence. As things are, however, there have been a discernible tendencies for interpreters in different periods of the church's history to see in the apostles' thorn a more or less perfect reflection of the trials which best their own lives. What's he saying? He's saying that Paul intentionally described his thorn generically so that when you read about Paul's weaknesses, you would see your own. You would be reminded of your own, right? Have you ever heard a story from somebody else and it sounded very similar to your own story? Like, yo, I can totally relate to that, right? That's the reason why Paul refers to his thorn so vaguely to where you and I could easily connect and relate to him. Now, why would Paul do that? For the second reason why he wants us to understand his weakness as a thorn. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you've ever had the misfortune of being stuck by a thorn because, I don't know, you're handling some flowers, you're playing around some you know, thorny bushes, you would know that when you get stuck by a thorn, what's your immediate reaction? You just move away, right? I mean, you don't even have to think about it. It's so instinctual, you just get, out, right? But here's, here's the thing about thorns, which is what makes them so annoying is that they have a nasty habit of getting stuck under your skin. I remember one year I, I bought uh, roses for my wife, right? 12 dozen, not 12 dozen, a dozen roses, 12 roses, 12 dozen, yeah. I don't get paid that much, guys, right? I bought a dozen roses, I think for Valentine's Day, and I was handling and I got stuck in the tip of the thorn, got under my skin, and it literally took me like eight hours to get it out. I mean, thorns have this nasty habit of just getting stuck onto you to where they're almost impossible to remove. And Paul, knowing this characteristic of thorns, thought that's the perfect way of describing the nature of weaknesses in his own life and in your life as well. See, Paul wants us to accept something that so many of us refuse to accept, and that is our weaknesses are stuck to us, to where they're practically unremovable, which is simply another way of saying the weaknesses that we struggle with are going to be with us till the day we die. We will not be able to conquer the weaknesses that we have in our lives. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying that the weaknesses that you have, right, they're unconquerable. I mean, just read again what Paul writes in verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three separate occasions, Paul is praying, God, get this out of my life. Get this out of my life. Which makes you wonder, How many times Paul has failed in his attempt to pull the thorn out on his own before he went to God on three separate occasions for God to do it himself. How desperate Paul must have been, how frustrated, how failed he was in pulling out the quote-unquote thorns of life, the weaknesses that he struggled with. Hear me when I say this, folks. Whatever weaknesses you may have in your life, whether it's the realm of your physical body, your psychological stability, or your social dynamic tendencies with other people, Most cases, in all cases, they're probably going to be with you until you leave this earth. Listen to how one New Testament scholar, Paul Barnett, he puts it. He says this, quote, As Christians, we must accept that we live in God's plan B world and that the plan A world is yet to come. In this present world, there are injustices and equality and inequality, and frequently we are helpless to remedy the evil effects of these in our own lives. In this present existence, we suffer from disorders within our own personalities, and though prayer and counseling may minimize them, they are not always removed. 
In our present lives, many suffer from ill health, mental illness, and disease that neither intercession nor medication overcome. As a result, it's all too easy to allow these things to eat away at our lives until we become embittered and self-pitying. But what then? What is the Christian to do in these circumstances of pain and suffering? He is to pray that the Lord will deliver him as Paul did. It may be that God will deliver the person mindful that such deliverances are what? Partial. Partial. These are some very, very wise words. And I'm really hoping that all of you in here will heed it. Really listen. Why? Because many of you in here, some of you are really, really bitter or you're getting close to it. Or others of you are very, very self-pitying or you're getting very close to that. No doubt part of that is due to the thorns that you have in your life, the weaknesses that frustrate you. But the bigger reason and the main reason why you're so bitter or self-pitying or both is because you carry this expectation in your life that weaknesses should be conquerable, that weaknesses should be removable from your life. Listen, Paul is saying, I'm sorry. That expectation is not only unfounded, but it is dangerous, dangerous. Why is it dangerous? It is dangerous because it will leave you so fixated, so obsessed, and chasing after something that cannot be caught. Again, if you have this mindset that your weaknesses, your thorns, whatever they are, they should be removable, they should be conquerable, you're just going to be consumed with obsession and fixation to the point where you're chasing after something that cannot be caught. And because of that, Instead of living the life that God has called you to live, you're going to waste your life. You know how you're going to waste your life? You're going to waste your life by following after false teachers. False teachers? Pastor John, are you saying Pastor James is a false teacher? <laughs> because other than you, he's the only you know, spiritual teacher that I hear, and this is the only church I go to. Are you saying Pete James in front of everybody is a false teacher? False teacher? No. You have to understand something. He's not a false teacher, right? False teachers today come in many shapes and sizes. They can be Christian, non-Christian. They can be religious, atheistic. They can be uh, beautiful, unattractive. They can be rich, poor. They can be anybody. False teachers are anyone who teaches false things about life and pass them off as true. And one of the most prominent false teachings that we see over and over in our society is the false teaching that says you can have a weakness-free life. You can have a thorn-free life, right? They'll just say things like, just take this pill, just read this book, just marry this kind of person, just overcome this kind of habit, just develop this kind of habit, just achieve this kind of achievement, and you can be weakness-free, right? What is that? That is false teaching. And any person who teaches that to you, whether it be a pastor on TV, a billboard in the city, a celebrity on Twitter, a politician in Washington— they are all leading you astray because they will tell you to chase after people, places, things, and achievements. And when you do get these things, you'll find that you are still weak. You can get all this status. You can get all this fame. You can get all this admiration. And you find that behind closed doors when no one is watching, you're still just as weak as you were before you had any of those things. Hear me when I say this. Weaknesses, they're unavoidable. You will get them if you don't already have them. Or maybe a better way to put it, you do have them even before you realize you do have them. And once you do realize you have them, they're always going to be with you. 
And you know what? That's normal. That's normal. And when I say normal, I don't mean the way it should be. I mean more the way Dr. Soren describes to Commander LaForge. It's what everyone else is. It's what everyone else is. The common standard of life is that everyone has weaknesses because they're unavoidable and they're unconquerable, period. Now, if you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, you're thinking to yourself, man, I thought you Christians were a bunch of hopeful optimistics. This is pretty gloomy, man. You know, why would I want to embrace Christianity? Pastor, can you uh, end this message so that maybe I won't leave all gloomy and maybe I would still be interested in Christianity? Well, let me attempt to do so by going to my final point. Your weaknesses keep you safe. You know, one of the biggest questions that are probably been burning through your head right now is probably this one. Why in the world would God create a reality where you and I and everyone else around us would have weaknesses that are both unavoidable and unconquerable? Why would God permit such an existence for our lives? Why would God allow such a thing? Verse 7, again, he tells us exactly what he says. Why? He says this, so to keep me from becoming what? Conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Here in a nutshell, Paul is explaining why God allows weaknesses in our lives that are both unavoidable and unconquerable. He basically says it protects us. Our weaknesses they protect us. And you're like, boy, that, that makes no sense. How can something that's weak protect us? Usually something that protects us has to be strong. It has to be sturdy in order for it to be protective, right? How can something weak be safe for us, ensure our safety? Well, let me use this silly illustration because it's the only one I could make up. Imagine your greatest enemy right now is a cold-blooded killer, right? 400-pound muscle, crazy, psychopathic killer, and this person wants to kill you, and he's in this room with you, right? You're probably not feeling very protected. But let me say that out of some freakish accident, both of his arms are cut off and both of his legs are cut off, right? Do you feel scared still? Good job. We're going to become that kind of church, Joe. Amen? Okay, maybe not. <laughs> you see, the handicap, the disability of this threat, the great enemy, the cold-blooded killer, makes us feel safe. The fact that this killer is weak makes us feel safe. Well, Paul says that's exactly what it means, right? Our weaknesses protects us from our greatest enemy. And you know who our greatest enemy is, according to the Bible? yourself. The Bible says you are your own greatest enemy. Consider two well-known passages of scripture that verify this. Proverbs 16 verse 25 says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way that leads to death. I don't know. Someone who's trying to lead you to death is not really your ally. Sounds like your great enemy. Or what Paul says in Romans 7, I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know what not, that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Sounds like an inner conflict going on as if there is an enemy within trying to sabotage you, right? You see, there is a greater problem in the eyes of God than your weakness. And you know what it is? It's your sinfulness. Your sinfulness. What is your sinfulness? 
Your sinfulness is your self-absorbed, self-centered, self-worshipping mindset that leads to your self-destruction. That is what sinfulness is. It is the self-absorbed, self-centered, self-worshipping mindset that leads to your self-destruction. Here's the thing. Sinfulness is not simply the result of you doing sinful things. It's not just having bad behavior. It is the underlying mindset that fuels that bad behavior that says, I'm the most important person in the world. And I want everyone else to recognize how superior I am, how stronger I am to all of you. Right? That is sinfulness. And that is the mindset we're protected from with our weaknesses. Because you know what our weaknesses say about us? Our weaknesses say the complete opposite of the sinful mindset. What does our weakness say about us? Our weaknesses say to us that we are not important, we are not significant, we're not invaluable, and we're not irreplaceable. That is what our weaknesses is constantly communicating to us. We're not invaluable, we're not irreplaceable, we're not significant, right? We're not important. And because our weaknesses are both unconquerable and unavoidable, that means we cannot conquer and we cannot avoid the fact of what our weaknesses say about us. No matter what you do, no matter what you achieve, no matter what status you acquire, you will never be able to eviscerate the fact that you are not important, you are not significant, you are not invaluable, you are not irreplaceable. But you know what? That's okay. You know why it's okay? Because of what Paul says in verses 8 to 9. Listen to what he says. Or excuse me, not 8 to 9, 9 to 10. He says this, my grace, this is Jesus talking to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says that the only person who could avoid weaknesses, all weaknesses, God, chooses to become a weak person, a human being, Jesus Christ. And as a human being, Jesus Christ, he could have conquered all human weaknesses. In fact, that's what Satan was trying to tempt him to do in the 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, right? Show that you're not weak, Jesus. Show the world who you really are, that you are the most important, the most significant, the most invaluable, the most irreplaceable person. Show that you are the begotten son of God as a human being. But Jesus doesn't do that. He voluntarily goes to the cross and he suffers as if he is the weakest person of all. He suffers as if he is the king of weakness. I mean, do you think it's a coincidence that the thing that comprises his crown on the cross is a bunch of thorns? What is that trying to convey? That he is the king of weakness, right? He is the weakest person on all. On that moment on the cross, he has all the shame, all the scandal, all the humiliation that we try to avoid to the weaknesses that we feel attached to us, right? He takes it all voluntarily for us, right? Why? For two reasons. Reason number one, Jesus dies on the cross so that he could pay the full penalty of your sinfulness, my sinfulness, and the sinfulness of anyone who would trust in him as Lord and Savior, submitting their lives to him, making him the purpose of their existence, right? 
All that we would need to do to receive this salvation is to recognize that we are weak, to recognize we need to be saved, and that Jesus is the only one who can do it. Right? That's the first reason. The second reason, so that you would know how much he, God, your creator, loves you, even though you are not important, not significant, not invaluable, not irreplaceable. In other words, the cross reveals that God loves you as if you're the most powerful person, even though you are weak. What is Paul saying when he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't he saying that it's when we recognize that we are weak, that we're able to recognize what Jesus's weakness for us says about him? That when we consider what our weaknesses says about us, we are able to see what Jesus's weaknesses for us says about him. He is the God who loves you with a deep, merciful and gracious love to where he sees you, even though you're not, as if you're the most important, the most significant, the most irreplaceable, the most invaluable human being ever. See, the gospel is not interested in getting you to think that you can be free of weakness. The gospel is supremely interested in helping you understand that your God loves you and that through his love, that is the pathway of becoming strong. It is through his love that the outcome of it will be you will finally be able to conquer what you currently cannot and will not on your own, and you will finally be able to avoid what you cannot avoid right now on your own. That is the promise of the gospel. It begins with the foundation and with the stubborn clinging that God loves you as you are in him. Here's the question as yet. Do you believe that? Will you believe that? At this time, I'd like to end today's message with some practical next steps as a better way for you to apply today's message in the hopes that you can benefit it the most. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you feel today's message resonated with you to a point where you feel you're ready to take the next step and embrace Christ for who he is and trust him as Lord and Savior, please take this time now as we pray by acknowledging your own sinfulness and looking to God for the forgiveness of your sins and making him the Lord of your life. Please, afterwards, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor James. We would love to help you go on the course of your next steps of journeying in the faith. Number two. This is a challenge for you guys. It might take about 30 minutes to an hour. Take some time this week. Write out weaknesses that you are currently obsessing over and pray that God will keep you from becoming bitter or self-pitying or maybe to help you overcome that now because of the fact that you're not avoiding them, you're not conquering them yet, okay? Number three, identify some people or maybe identify some responsibilities in your life that you have neglected because you're so obsessed with trying to avoid and overcome these weaknesses, but you can't, right? And try to come up with one or two practical ways of how you can fulfill these responsibilities, how you can invest in these people that you've been neglecting. And then number four, in your Oikos groups, be willing to share some of these things and pray that your members can keep you accountable and encourage you as you go through this journey of clinging to the gospel more than trying to let go of your thorns. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, especially 
as New Yorkers living in a city that is constantly demanding that we would be thorn free, that we would have no weakness. Lord, you know that we all have weaknesses. You know that we struggle. But God, we pray that you would enable us to not be so obsessed or fixated in chasing after something that we can never get anyway, but instead recognize what you have already given to us or you're offering to us, which is your love and mercy through your son, Jesus. Father, for too many of us, we've wasted and squandered so many years of being bitter and self-pitying. But Lord, no more. Help us instead to be agents of hope and change, to be people who can be loving and accepting and that we can create a community that is safe for weaklings, for people like us. For Jesus, you were more than willing to be weak for our sake and you became the king of weaklings so that weaklings like us could be powerful and strong in you. Oh God, would you enable us to hold to that faith and to hold to that truth? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.